AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. There was an interesting article put up by Radware talking about some malware that they had seen in one of their honeypots. And by calling it malware, I may be giving it too much credit. This is a really interesting one, and I, I kind of, I want to get your opinion on it. I've been trying to get as many people's opinion as I can. Okay. So Radware put out uh, an article talking about some malware that they're calling Brickerbot they observed in their Telnet uh, honeypots. Okay. So the first stage of it is pretty much the same way that Mirai gets in. So. This thing will go and try, you know, connect to Telnet and try a whole bunch of passwords. Mm -hmm. It doesn't actually push malware. Uh, it runs a bunch of shell commands. And there's two different versions of it, but they, the first one seems tailored to like BusyBox devices. Like, you know, BusyBox is like a single binary yep. that a whole bunch of IoT devices use to do things like CP and LS. And right, a bunch cat. Of... It's got all those common exactly. Unix utilities all in one binary. Yeah. Right, so the first version of it is doing using like um, BusyBox, cat, devu random, over a bunch of different um, storage devices. So like dev SDA, places where you'd be storing files. Mm -hmm. And the intent, I suppose, is to try and wipe out those devices. Just overwrite them with random garbage so that the device is effectively bricked. Okay. Somebody's going out there trying to find these IoT devices that we've been talking about um, and trying to intentionally brick them. And bricking is a term that we use to say you've basically made it completely non-functional. The whole idea, I think, being to take devices that they know are vulnerable and potentially infectable by things like Mirai and other IoT botnets and take them out of that pool. The second version uses other means, but similarly the same thing, you know, find yourself a device and just dump a whole bunch of data into it or try and do an RMRF. And they're doing something with, with FDisk where, you know, they're reconfiguring it a, a drive. Really? It's weird, it's like FDisk, set number of, of platters and sectors and, and something else to like one, which is basically create an invalid disk on the disk that you've already got. Like weird little things and like that. And does that, that even work, I guess well, is the question. that's where I'm going with this. I'm not really sure that it works the way the authors intended it to. I've done a little bit of research, talked to people who are familiar with IoT technology, how the storage works in these devices. I actually reached out to Allison Nixon at Flashpoint because she's an expert in this sort of thing too. Right. And I think she agrees with me that this isn't really going to work on a lot of devices. Um, IoT devices usually mount certain things as read-only when they boot. Like right. if you're in U-boot before the operating system boots up, you know, before you load the firmware, or in other situations you can you know, make changes to these partitions, but once you're in the operating system, a lot of this stuff is read-only. Mm -hmm. So you can cat all day to it or you can try and RMRF it, but it shouldn't make a difference. Right. So if this you reboot it, it should come back to normal. Exactly. Basically. Right. And this thing's they're calling it Brickerbot, but I think it, there's there's certain things that'll do that are really, you know, ruin your day if you're not an expert or you're at least technically savvy enough to press the button on the back. It's supposed to be, I think, vigilante malware. Kind of like uh Wi-Fatch and a couple of the other ones we've seen right, right. reincarna where it's trying to solve the IoT problem, the IoT, you know, default passwords or or dumb vulnerabilities problem. Instead of changing the passwords and locking people out, it's trying to take the device down entirely. Hmm. We've seen lots of families of malware go infect these devices and they use them for their own purposes. They don't try to intentionally damage them. We've also seen uh, there's some actors out there that try to take over the device, lock it down, still leave it functional for the user. This is another type of actor that's really intentionally trying to 
make the device completely non-functional. I don't think it's a great solution. I know a lot of people are just sick and tired of seeing these sorts of devices online, and they just want to find a quick solution to it, but I think the, the upshot's going to be a lot worse. Yeah, and I'm not sure it's going to work in most cases. I think it probably won't work. On the other hand, right. though, if you're running a Linux box where some of these partitions... Right, that can be really nice. Exactly. So yeah. you might be taking down devices you don't intend to take down. Right. But again, these are all, like, from what we understand, they're using the same username and password pairs. If, if this thing gets on your box, it's using bad passwords in the first place. It was probably popped by Mirai at some point because Mirai uses these same username and password pairs. Mm -hmm. It shows that some people are willing to go to much further lengths to try and solve the IoT botnet problem than others are. Most of them have been somewhat white hat-ish. They'll, they'll do things like break into the device and then secure it, which on the one hand you're breaking in, but the other hand you're not doing any further harm than that. This is a much more aggressive approach, trying to permanently take the device offline. And I disagree with it because there's no actual knowledge of what that device is. This type of thing is not something, you know, yeah, sure the IoT problem is a big problem and it's not really getting any better. Um, so, you know, but this is not the right means to take care of this problem. Um, unfortunately, there aren't a lot of good solutions to take care of it either, because it really requires users to take their devices and either patch them or um, get new devices that are more uh, secure right out of the gate when you power them up. So maybe over time things will get better, but I think it's going to be a long time. There are a lot of organizations with an AT&T that I admire but one of the ones at the top of the list is really our global fraud management team. To a large extent, I try to model our own organization around a lot of work that they've been doing for quite some time. My name's Adam Panagia. I'm a director with AT&T's Global Fraud Management Organization. Our team works to uh, perform prevention, detection, and deterrence of fraudulent schemes that are perpetrated against AT&T and our customers. Regulators and uh, robocall tracking companies estimate that uh, 2.4 billion robocalls per month uh, are reaching consumers. Uh, that's over well over 10 billion uh, robocalls last year. Back in August, um, our CEO uh, volunteered to uh, lead the robocall strike force made up of uh, various different carriers, regulators, uh, and equipment manufacturers. This isn't just an AT&T thing. This is working with our competitors. And, that, and that's relatively unusual to get, you know, a big group of people working together like that. It but is. clearly is a rec recognition that, you know, this is a problem that needs to be cleaned up. That, uh, and it's a universal problem. It's not just AT&T. Yeah. It's everybody's kind of been struggling with it. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So the strike force was broken out into uh, four different working groups. Mm -hmm. We had a, a standards group that was focused on longer term issues like uh, authenticating caller ID, mm -hmm. working to uh, put more mechanized traceback uh, in place so we can trace back calls very fast mm -hmm. to the source. We had another group that was uh, working on empowering consumer choice. So putting um, call blocking applications uh, in, the, in the consumer's hand. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a, uh, an app uh, AT&T Call Protect that's uh, available for consumers and also putting edu you know, educating consumers not to be scammed on mm -hmm. these calls and give yeah. up their mm -hmm. sensitive personal information. So you mentioned the app, AT&T Call Protect. Where, where would somebody go to find it? You this? can get them in the Apple App Store, the Droid App Store, and it's mm -hmm. a free app. I have it on my phone and it works great. It's warning me of telemarketing calls and if the call has a high risk score, if it's a fraud call, 
um, the call never even rings to my phone. It works um, by bouncing inbound calls up against a, a huge blacklist of uh, risky numbers mm -hmm. that, that are known out there in the industry. So does it work kind of on a voting kind of criteria? So if you report, you know, a robocall and some other folks are reporting it. I think there's a similar thing for spam, a 77, is it 7726 I think yes. it is, where yep. you can dial it. So it's a thing where by submitting your sort of vote to say this is a effectively a robocall or a spam message or something like that, uh, that gets consolidated into a database and then used as a means to help screen which ones should be blocked. Absolutely, if there's X number of complaints on a number, they'll mm -hmm. either deem it a, a you know, a, a telemarketing or spam call, or if, or if there's a more malicious intent on the number, mm -hmm. it's uh, deemed a fraud call, and that call never even makes it to your mm -hmm. phone, but it, but you get a notification that, yeah. that the app blocked the call. And you'd mentioned the, the traceback. That's pretty important, because what you're really trying to do is get back to the origin, so you can actually block the origin of those robocalls. And uh, oftentimes, it's not that many origins. It's just a matter of finding where they are. It's been going back hop by hop, to get close mm -hmm. to the source. And that's what some of these authentication standards are gonna do. The first carrier will sign that call, and even if it goes through 10 carriers and gets to a consumer, the carriers in the middle or near the consumer can, instead of going back 10 hops, they mm -hmm. can just say, oh, it came from XYZ mm -hmm. uh, Telecom, we'll go right back to them and, mm -hmm. and find the source. Yeah. The one thing with, with the robocalling is it's a little more tricky than perhaps you know spam analysis because generally email spam they're screening the emails themselves to look for content that's right. indicative of spamming activity the robocalls are a little trickier because it's voice there's no recording available so right. you're really looking at just really the the patterns the of the behavior yeah. the other thing i find interesting i mean robocalling is challenging because there are good robocallers and bad robocallers yeah. so and you have to be able to make that distinction but when you're just looking at call detail records, it's not as easy yeah. to mm -hmm. distinguish between yeah. something that's maybe a political campaign mm -hmm. kind of thing versus uh, someone with bad intent. Right. So. Mm -hmm. We break it down to three categories. There's legitimate robocalls, mm -hmm. there's unwanted robocalls, and then there's downright malicious, illegal, mm -hmm. criminal robocalls mm -hmm. where they're trying to scam our customers' sensitive personal mm -hmm. information. As you mentioned, there are legitimate ones. It may be a school district sending out a school mm. closing school. notification in Absolutely. clement weather. Right. Yeah. So you don't want to be blocking those types of things. In fact, in some cases, those are emergency management organizations. And you want to be, make sure you don't. Now, on the scam side of it, what, what's the motivation? Money, money, money. It's all about the money. <laughs> all about the money. Most yeah. of the big scams in recent months have been imposter scams. Mm. They're impersonating the IRS, impersonating right. tech support, mm -hmm. impersonating financial institutions, power companies, mm -hmm. you name mm -hmm. it. And spoofing goes hand in hand with robocalling. Mm -hmm. and, and when spoofing is involved, it A, it, it allows them to fly under the radar a little mm -hmm. bit better, and B, it, it helps them uh, hide their, you know, where they really are, mm -hmm. you know, and it's, it's more difficult to trace it back when right. there's a spoofing scenario. So when you talk about spoofing, what they're doing is basically forging the source that is where the call is coming from. And using, you know, software, uh, Linux boxes to send out whatever telephone number. They send out the telephone number of the IRS. Mm -hmm. When people, you know, pick up the, the phone, that wins over their confidence immediately. Mm -hmm. Oh, right, it right. says IRS no, like on the, IRS, on the yeah. caller ID device, mm -hmm. you know. So what we've been doing uh, since the uh, robocall strike force is we partnered with the big data 
organization and we're mining uh, our vast amount of CDRs that come across the network. Call detail records? Call yeah. detail yeah. records. A CDR is a call detail record. It's a record of a transaction of a voice call that traverses the AT&T network. Things like date, time, originating number, terminating number, and the duration of the call. Every day or on a routine basis, we are getting a, a list of suspect telephone numbers that are mm -hmm. likely robocallers. We're doing some more research on them, tapping the skills of our, our fraud investigators, doing mm -hmm. some more research on those numbers, and then we're implementing blocks uh, in mm -hmm. the network to stop those robocallers uh, from calling through our network. Right. So we take the network analysis and we fuse that with the complaints. Mm -hmm. So it, it helps mm -hmm. us make a better decision. Okay, this made a lot of calls, but didn't have a lot of complaints. Maybe we need to dig into it a little bit mm -hmm. more before right. we block right. it. Right. 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 Yeah. We see uh, complaints that come back into the FTC uh, declining uh, last year, towards the end of the year. So I think we're making a difference. We need to get more carriers involved in this effort because robocalls flow through the network like water. If just AT&T blocks it, they're gonna jump to another carrier stream and make it to consumers. So we're trying to make sure that we're all uh, following best practices and putting blocks in the network uh, on a routine basis. Being able to block robocalling in general and these fraudulent or these fraud-oriented calls is important because if we can stop them from getting to the consumer in the first place, we can you know, hopefully prevent them from getting tricked into maybe giving away information that might let the fraudster or the bad actor on the other end of the phone take advantage of that customer. I am a fan of the show. Um, I love partnering with, the, with John and Brian and the CSO team. Uh, those guys are wicked smart and it's a pleasure to be able to work with them and, and learn from them. It's always a joy to have Adam on the show. You know, he's a good friend and a partner of ours. So Adam's team stepped up to the job. Uh, actually, our corporate C CEO, Randall Stevenson, came in, started a strike force across many carriers and uh, other organizations, and uh, they really put a big dent in the problem. Hey, Matt, how are you doing? I'm doing all right. So I was taking a little bit of a look at the internet weather for the last week or so here. I wanted to share a few things with you. We didn't see any really significant changes this week. Uh, and so what we really kind of chose to do is look at how it's been trending over time in terms of the scanning activity, the botnet developments, the, uh, the development of different target vectors or attack vectors that the botnets have been using over the last several months. So what I'm showing here is actually between around February, you know, around the end of February and then showing up, we're seeing, you know, roughly an increasing trend in activity. It's okay. very spiky but there are some attacks that have gotten up in excess of uh, what we're seeing about, you know, in the gigabit range, okay. you know, not tens of gigabits, but the gigabit per second range. If we were to look farther to the left, there was some similar kind of activity in October timeframe, okay. but that was then, and this is now. So uh, we're, we're seeing some uh, increase in activity using LDAP as a reflective mechanism and denial service attacks. We've been talking a lot about reflective denial service attacks for some time. In fact, there was a whole list of potential attack vectors that could be used in all service attacks. Some of them kind of come and go. 
And one that's shown up recently is LDAP. You know, LDAP uses uh, UDP port 389. It can use other ports as well, but this is one in particular that allows an amplification effect. I can send a very small request and create a larger response, and that increases the amount of traffic overall towards my target. Do we know what the, the um, amplification factor is on LDAP? Because I imagine there's, there's going to be ways to eke more traffic out of it by sending the right requests. You know, I don't know what the amplification factor is, and I think it could have something to do with the way the, the database is configured, okay. uh, but we are seeing that it does load up packets and then causes fragmentation on top of that. So it is a reasonable amount of amplification opportunity that's in there. Okay. In the internet, there aren't that many LDAP servers out there, and that's been one of the big deterrents. And apparently an attacker group has found some LDAP servers that they're using in reflective attack activity more recently. This one just happened to show up in the radar um, and we'll see it show up in the pie charts in a bit here, but sources scanning on port 1433 TCP, there is, you know, obviously an increase, and this is right around uh, April 6th here, where it showed up as an uh, increase in the number of sources, and we're up in the single-digit thousands of sources that are doing this scanning activity, but it's clearly botnet activity that's co contributing to it. Mm -hmm. You don't just have, you know, um, you know uh, thousands of sources you know, start scanning the internet at the same time on the same port uh, for no reason at all. So uh, clearly somebody's putting some additional effort relative to what we've seen in the past on uh, trying to identify SQL databases. Now, we often see other types of SQL databases targeted as well. Sure. Um, this one just happened to show up on the radar as, uh, you know, sort of a significant change in activity recently. And then looking at the uh, top 10 most probed ports, uh, well, Actually, the port, port 1433 that we just talked about showed up as the most changed or the most increased wow. in the uh, amount of activity. We obviously see port 23, port 22, uh, port 23 being the telnet, you know, mm -hmm. targeting a lot of IoT devices. Port 22, which is less IoT, but, um, you know, targeting Linux systems mostly. Likely, uh, I think we've seen scanning activity to uh, basically populate the XOR DDoS botnet yep. on port 22. Brian did some really interesting analysis this week, comparing the different scan types, um, seeing which when each one you know increased, decreased relative to each other, in sort of a, a river chart of like a composite of the overall volume and which per, you know, percentage of that was each of the top five or so ports. So what I thought would be useful is to kind of look at this you know over the last 180 days in a composite to see how they've been changing over time, a little different perspective than we typically look at. This is actually looking at the most, it says most sources, this is actually the most probes. So you can see, you know, port 23 is actually down in terms of what we've had seen up to the end of 2016. That's a good thing. This is port 7547 that we talked about. You can see where there's a big set of activity back here at the uh, end of November. That was, you know, the event that impacted Deutsche Telekom and yep. some other ISPs. And it sort of went away for a little bit, but then you can see that it's been kind of steady state. It's come back and there's a botnet that's you know, pretty focused on uh, uh, continuing to scan that port. Uh, we see here a little bit, this is actually this really thin line here, I'm pretty sure, yeah, that's uh, port 80 activity. Um, every once in a while we see some spikes in activity there, but it's a little, been a little more steady than we had seen in terms of, again, uh, the amount of probing. I think we're gonna see there are more sources that are doing that probing. When we take a look at the uh, sources graph, we've seen this is sort of the yellow band 
an increase in the amount of activity on port 22. Although it's not really obvious here, I think it'll show up a little more when we take a look at the uh, most sources probing. And then on port 5358, that's that one that appears to be manipulating the universal plug and play. Um, you can see that that's obviously become a more, this is the turquoise one, uh, and that's become a, a, of a greater interest since, uh, you know, about uh, January, there, end of January, beginning of February. Before we go any further, the last few weeks of the show, we've been saying that 5358 is related to the Hajime botnet, which I'm not sure we're actually tying to. Oh, it may well be. Okay, to uh, plug and play. So that's, you know, maybe I'll have to ask you later for a few more details. Activity on port 5358, I think it, we're still kind of struggling with what's going on there. John Hogaboom and I had the theory that the 5358 um, activity was related to the Hajime botnet. And Brian, when he was doing his explanation, he, he said it was related to UPnP traffic. I think they're really trying to get, you know, sort of behind the initial firewall that we depend on at most people's homes, you know, the, uh, the home router, so they can get the devices that are within home networks. But at this point, we don't, really don't have hard evidence that shows exactly what's going on there. I think what we're saying is we have some decent theories, but we don't know definitively what it is. And, you know, I'd invite, um, you know, folks, that, if anybody knows, that, you know, we'd like to hear from them. Sure. So I created a similar type of graph, and I apologize for the uh, bright colors here, but the tool actually defines the colors. It's okay, Easter's <laughs> coming up. I think those are Easter's perfect. coming up, it looks like, yeah, it looks like a rabbit. But I think it's interesting, now, it looks like there's a big spike in port 23 here and actually isn't a big spike in port 23. It was actually a big spike in port 7547. That is, this graph is an additive graph. Mm -hmm. All of the underlying contributors add to what's on top of that. So uh, that's often easily confused when you look at a graph like this. But uh, the real spike back here at the end of November was that case where we already talked about 7547, that CP win management protocol. And then as you can see, obviously port 23 being a big factor here, and it's actually sort of tailing off. And again, we're looking at the number of sources that are doing this scanning activity. So it's a strong indicator of Sort of a reasonable indicator of the size of the botnet that's actually doing the activity. So it looks like the botnets are actually uh, getting somewhat smaller as we continue forward here. Although it looks like the activity is sort of tapering down, I've got my fingers crossed, but I'm not going to really count on that. I think we're really kind of in a lull period and uh, a new attack vector is going to show up and we're going to start to see these botnets building up again. And it's also interesting to see we had this little null point here which showed up actually on both of these ports, which was probably an indication of somebody who took down the command and control associated with the botnet, disrupted it for a brief period of time. But that's one of these uh, you know, troubles with trying to disrupt botnets is they're generally able to come back relatively quickly. And so you ask yourself, is it really worth the trouble? That's interesting, actually. This week there was the, uh, the takedown of the Kelohost botnet. It also came with an arrest. And I think in general, when you have a botnet takedown, if there aren't arrests associated with it, there's much better chance that the botnet's gonna bounce back. Or there really needs to be, uh, in effect, that automation around the ability to continually take it down as much as there's automation in the ability for botnets to build themselves. Sure. And, uh, and that really becomes the challenge is that it, there are a lot of, it's a really very much of a cat and mouse game, so to speak, that uh, the botnets have designed a lot of resilience into them. And each botnet has its own forms of resilience. And mm -hmm. so the takedowns, while maybe piecemeal for a very short period of time, uh, taking them down and, and keeping it that way is very difficult without taking the operators 
out of operation, so to speak. And you know, their arrests are a way to do that. Absolutely. Certainly. So a couple of other things that are kind of interesting to see here, as I mentioned earlier, you know, this 5358, that's become uh, much more significant. I think I mentioned earlier, we see some more significant activity in terms of the number of sources probing on port 80. That may be associated with some recent vulnerabilities that had come out on certain types of things that, you know, maybe perhaps uh, probing around or looking for those. And we also see here the yellow band where we see port 22 showing up more, that's SSH. There was a little bit back at the beginning of the year, you know, it went into sort of a null state. And now we're seeing that over the last uh, about a month or so where it's uh, become more significant activity in the, uh, the overall number of sources doing the scanning. Hmm. Does that correlate to the, the web dev bug that came out of a few weeks back? Uh, it's a possibility. You know, I didn't actually go back and research that, but uh, there's a good possibility that they were uh, basically searching around for services that might be vulnerable to that. Yeah, All absolutely. Right. And it's not unusual that we see that sort of activity. Some of it might actually be researchers, but the thing that's significant here is because we are tracking the number of sources doing that scanning activity, mm -hmm. Uh, it's more likely associated with some botnet activity that's uh, that's performing it, and uh, you can see way back here, back in you know, this was uh, beginning of November last year, where there was clearly some botnet activity that was targeting web servers. You know, basically going into the uh, hundreds of thousands of sources as it peaked out at that level. Cool. All right, um, and that's it. That's all I have. My phone's ringing. <laughs> <laughs> the views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.